uh, welcome you all here today uh, to this special public lecture organised jointly by the Ralph Miliband Program here at the LSE and the Politics and Society Group in the Department of Sociology. Uh, my name is Robin Archer and I'm the current director of the Political and Sociology Program here. And as I'm sure many of you know, uh, Ralph Miliband was, of course, intimately involved with the LSE and in Years. So we thought when we uh, saw that it was the 50th anniversary of this book that it was an appropriate opportunity to look again at the major contribution he made and the way he influenced politics both in our country and more generally in a number of countries um, during this time as an activist and intellectual. But I think um, it's important to emphasise that it wasn't simply. Um, that's not working or. It wasn't. Oh, it's on now. Okay. Um, it, it wasn't simply that um, the book had a 50th anniversary. No mean feat, though that is. It's also that when we started rereading it and looking through it, there were striking contemporary resonances in this book uh, about the world we live in today. And so it's in that context, thinking about the contemporary uh, implications of this work, that we've organised uh, this. Uh, special public lecture. Now, I'm very, very pleased to be able to invite Professor Leo Panich here. It's hard to imagine anybody who could uh, be in a better position to contribute um, the discussion which we're hoping to have. Professor Panich holds a Canadian research chair in political economy and a distinguished research professorship at York University in Canada. And he's also a long-standing editor of the Socialist Register, a task which he shared for many years um, with Ralph Miliband um, himself. He did his master's degree here in political sociology um, and then went on to do a PhD here as well, and that became a book, um, Social Democracy and Industrial Militancy. And since then, he's produced numerous books and articles, including a book, The End of Parliamentary Socialism, uh, which he co-authored, and most recently, In and Out of Crisis, a book that looks at the global financial crisis and the possibility of left-wing alternatives. He's due very shortly to publish uh, a kind of major work that he's been working on for really quite some time called The Making of Global Capitalism, and I imagine we'll see that in the next few months. So, um, really, it's great that you're able to come. It's great to have you here, and I'd like to welcome you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Robin, for that kind introduction, and thank you even more for organizing this event at the LSE. Uh, Ralph, of course, would have been somewhat ambivalent uh, about this. Um, Although he came here to study with Lasky, uh, did his PhD here, founded and ran the remarkable seminar on problems in contemporary socialism, an informal seminar that he thanks people who came to, students who came to, uh, in the preface to parliamentary socialism, and I, uh, 10 years later, uh, and many others, uh, learned a great deal at that informal seminar. Uh, he was at the LSE when his other great, great book in political sociology, The State and Capitalist Society, was published. Uh, but he had a uh, 
if I may say, ambivalent uh, attitude to his time at the LSE. Uh, despite the fact that uh, young Canadians like myself naively thought we were coming to a hothouse of socialist education uh, when we came to the LSE, Ralph uh, had seen firsthand for two decades the extent to which the LSE was really very much part of the British establishment uh, through the, uh, from the 40s on, but hadn't been before, uh, that Lionel Robbins or Karl Popper, much more than Miliband or Titmus uh, or Wedderburn or Griffiths, set the tone amongst the faculty. And when uh, the student riots, if you want to call them that, the occupation, of the LSE occurred uh, in 1968. I must say I was astonished today to go into the old theater, which I did for purely nostalgic reasons, uh, to see a wonderful statement by Nelson Mandela about the role of the LSE in helping to overcome apartheid. Uh, one should recall that the issue uh, that led to the occupation of the LSE was indeed the LSE's refusal to get rid of its investments in South Africa, South African Corporation. Um, uh, and of course, uh, in the face of those events, and especially the dismissal of Robin Blackburn and another uh, colleague, uh, Ralph was incensed with uh, his colleagues. And it wasn't long after that he took up an appointment as the chair of politics at Leeds, where when he was asked by a Tory, ex-Tory cabinet minister who was chancellor at Leeds what he would do there, he said, I will turn this into the best socialist politics department in the English-speaking world. They appointed him nevertheless, or maybe because of it. Uh, perhaps they weren't as frightened uh, as were the social democrats at the LSE of what Ralph was going to do. Um, and there's some irony, therefore, of course, in, in uh, the series of lectures that have been sponsored under Ralph's name. Uh, it was, it's indicative, entirely indicative of the kind of uh, broad-minded and inspiring teacher he was that a man who spent his life in the Ford Foundation, who had been a student of Ralph's, uh, uh, when Ralph died, uh, bequeathed his fortune, such as it was, to the LSE in Ralph's name. And that's where this uh, Miliband Foundation comes from. Uh, but Ralph, again, would have been, to put it mildly, uneasy with uh, the program of lectures uh, and uh, more than uneasy by what happened last year under its auspices. I won't say any more than that about it. Uh, now, it's very appropriate uh, that uh, this conference uh, have been held today. Uh, not only because of Ralph's association with the LSE, but because parliamentary socialism is one of the great books in political sociology of the 20th century. Uh, along with uh, Roberto Michel's political parties, The Iron Law of Oligarchy, published in 1916, uh, with Duverger's book on political parties, published in the 1950s, uh, Ralph's parliamentary socialism uh, stands out uh, as one of the great contributions um, uh, in political sociology uh, in the 20th century, and I'll talk more about that. Um, but I, I want, as, as Robin said, to really uh, spend my time as much as I can today uh, in addressing the way in which uh, Miliband's parliamentary socialism is most relevant today. 
And what makes it so, uh, and Robin Blackburn was just saying this at the mini-conference we had this afternoon, what makes it so is the current crisis of capitalism, uh, is the fourth great crisis of global capitalism uh, after the 1870s, the 1930s, the 1970s, and this one uh, that we are in the midst of living through. Uh, we are in the fourth year of that crisis. Uh, there's no let up yet. Far from it. Uh, it appears to be unraveling even further. Um, the stimulus that was undertaken uh, in 2009 when not only the global banking system uh, appeared to be seizing up, but the global trading system appeared to be seizing up. Uh, the stimulus that was undertaken was coordinated uh, amongst the G20 states, remarkably different from what happened in the 1930s when you had a quick turn to protectionism, a commitment to free trade on their part, uh, a commitment to free capital movements on their part, and an attempt at a coordinated stimulus, uh, which uh, largely was pulled off for a year. It turned out to be insufficient, and it was full of contradictions, because at the, even at the time that governments were stimulating, uh, uh, they were at the same time trying to reduce public sector wages. Uh, they were at the same time reducing the size of the public sector. And where you had federal states, uh, such as in the United States, the stimulus very largely uh, was about compensating for the cutbacks that were being undertaken at the state level. Uh, and that largely, uh, not largely, but to some extent counteracted the effects of the stimulus. Uh, we've seen in the wake of uh, that limited stimulus and essentially its failure to stop the crisis, uh, we've seen a remarkable reinforcement of neoliberalism um, uh, as a solution to the crisis. Uh, and and uh, that uh, increasingly reveals uh, the growing irrationality of capitalist society. We see that 80% uh, of the world's economists, most of them uh, neoclassicals, not Keynesians, uh, insofar as they're mainstream economists, are advocating stimulus. Uh, this is for the most part, not undertaken by the world states, because that stimulus, at the same time, stimulates bankers' orthodoxy. That is, uh, the banker's fears that in the pecking order of who will get repaid uh, on the basis of the bonds that are lent, uh, funds that are lent to states uh, to, in the form of the purchase of government bonds, uh, fears that uh, unless there are massive cutbacks in state commitments to the poor, to public sector workers, etc., the bankers may not be at the top of the pecking order in terms of getting repaid. And uh, they also, and this is, the, of course, uh, long-standing and inevitable bankers' orthodoxy, uh, are nevertheless, even at this moment of near deflation, uh, worried that stimulus may go too far and lead to inflation, and of course, if a banker lends you a dollar and you pay him back at 90 cents, he loses money. Right? Uh, the irrationality of the system is seen, uh, moreover, in the attempt, it's very modest, very moderate, but the attempt to introduce some additional regulation, especially in the form 
of uh, the capital that banks need to keep on their books. Uh, it is difficult for banks to raise that capital in markets. Uh, and here again, there is a constant concern that uh, a further degree of regulation uh, will have the effect of aggravating bankers' fears. And insofar as bankers' fears are aggravated and uh, they lead to the type of problem that Europe has seen over the course of this summer, uh, that will lead to the seizing up of the interbank market if banks aren't lending to one another, uh, then the whole system goes under. And that's not a matter of speculation. We're not now talking about uh, speculation. We're talking about the way in which uh, capitalist banking is essential to capitalist production and trade. Uh, so it's a very severe crisis, and the irrationality uh, of capitalism in the face of it uh, grows ever clearer. It grows ever clearer, moreover, uh, when you combine the economic crisis uh, with the uh, climate crisis, the ecological crisis that is occurring simultaneously. And even in the year of stimulus, 2009, what were almost all of the capitalist states trying to do, they were trying to use the derivative markets that the bankers had developed in order to establish a system of carbon trading which presumably would contain the, uh, uh, the climate crisis. Uh, depending on the very thing that had brought the financial system down, the enormous volatility in derivative markets, which was at the root of the housing crisis in the United States where uh, the whole thing began, uh, was now being looked to uh, as the capitalist solution, the green capitalism uh, that would get us out of the ecological crisis. Now, this, the fact that we are in the fourth year of the crisis has indeed produced, as we all are aware, and uh, I'm sure very interested in, enormous unrest uh, and protest. And what's very interesting is that it takes class forms. Uh, it takes the forms of class struggle, even if it isn't always put that way. Uh, some of it uh, is, is very inchoate, uh, taking the form of the riots that you saw here this year. Uh, some of it is more uh, articulated, such as the Occupy movement, which uh, has, after all, a rather crude but nevertheless clear class slogan the 99% versus the 1%. Um, moreover, increasingly, those protests identify, whether in the inchoate riot way or more explicitly, uh, such as uh, through the Occupy movement, uh, the problem is being systemic. The problem is being structural. The problem is with the system and, of course, part of the frustrating thing with the Occupy movement uh, is its uh, anarchist orientation, uh, precisely in terms of identifying the problem as a system and saying what the Occupy movement is doing is showing by the way we are living in these occupied public squares a different way of living without having uh, the institutional means of generalizing that, even if the whole world could live that way. Uh, but I saw it very clearly when I was at Occupy Wall Street, uh, and uh, there was a handheld cardboard sign by a young woman uh, that said, uh, the trouble with the American dream is that you have to be asleep to believe in it. <laughs> Wake up. Now, I've since discovered that actually was a line from the comedian George Carlin. I didn't know that at the time. 
but to capture the anti-systemic nature of this, The Nation magazine, uh, uh, on a, in its October 14th issue, and as all such magazines, they put a later date than when they come out, so it'll stay on the newsstands a little longer, so they hadn't yet seen the Occupy movement take off. They had on their front cover, Revive the American Dream. And that related to a conference in Washington uh, 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 that was oriented precisely to reforming the system, getting back to the American dream, trying to use the Democratic Party to realize what Obama had promised in terms of change. Uh, and and the, the difference in tone is remarkable. Right? Wake up, you have to be asleep to believe in it, versus revive the American dream. So there's an anti-systemic moment Uh, uh, in the form that protest is, is taking. Now, one of the uh, persistent aspects uh, that characterizes this crisis, and one of the reasons that we see uh, people who are protesting seeing the problem in terms of we need a different system, is precisely because of the crisis of social democracy in this crisis. Uh, it's a crisis of political leadership, um, which is seen, uh, I think, most generally around the world, but especially in North America, as associated with the disappointments of Obama, uh, who, after all, was nominated over Hillary Clinton Uh, because he was seen as something, offering something different than Clintonism, which was so closely associated, of course, with Blairism, uh, promising change in that very vague way. Um, and what has been the case, uh, and uh, this is not surprising in the face again of the danger any leader uh, faces, uh, of will I do something that aggravates the crisis rather than provides it? a alternative solution to it um, is something that Miliband captured very graphically and there's a passage that uh, I often quote uh, in the state and capitalist society uh, that uh, you might think uh, was written uh, about Obama himself were it not written in 1967 he probably wrote this paragraph certainly in 68 And he points out that there's a fear on the part of such leadership that they will aggravate the crisis by doing two radical things in the face of it. And he says, and this is typical Ralph, such fears are well justified. But there is more than one way to deal with the adverse conditions which such new governments encounter on their assumption of office. One of them is to treat these conditions as a challenge to greater boldness, as an opportunity to greater radicalism as a means rather than an obstacle to swift and decisive measures of reform. There is, after all, much that a genuinely radical government, firm in purpose and enjoying a substantial measure of popular support, may hope to do on the morrow of its electoral legitimation, not despite crisis conditions, but because of them. And doing so, it is likely to receive the support of many people, hitherto uncommitted or half-committed, but willing to accept a resolute lead. Well, the, so, the crisis of social democracy in this economic crisis is patent in this respect. 
Social Democrats everywhere they have been in office in this crisis have carried through neoliberal austerity. The irony of this is that they are now being jettisoned where that hasn't worked, as in the case of Pasok in Greece, which came to power just less than two years ago on a very radical program uh, for social democracy. Uh, and we now see uh, put in place uh, technocrats uh, who should not be seen merely as bankers' choices. On the whole, uh, Monti and Papademos are probably somewhat to the left of the existing governments. Uh, Papademos was an advisor to PASAK. He had been at the ECB, at the European Central Bank, and he came back to Greece to be an advisor to the new government. Uh, so it isn't a matter of whether they're slightly more right or slightly more left. Uh, it's that they have a job of convincing uh, the German government and through the German government, above all, the German Central Bank, uh, which has a job of convincing the European Central Bank, and behind this, of course, lies uh, convincing the German electorate, uh, that they ought to be playing the role that the American Treasury and Federal Reserve wants Germany to play, uh, which is the type of role that the American Treasury and Federal Reserve have been playing uh, ever since we got this financialized capitalism, which is throwing liquidity at capitalist crises. In that sense, containing them, not solving them, not preventing them, but containing them by throwing money at the banks when they're uh, in trouble. Uh, and the Germans have always had this, they always, you know, it's a famous line that uh, the Germans read Hayek rather than Keynes in the 1950s. Uh, certainly the German Central Bank did. And, and the Federal Reserve has always had to pull the German Bundesbank kicking and screaming away from its obsession with bankers' orthodoxy and moral hazard. And that they're facing that, that problem today. But there's a much deeper crisis uh, than the lack of radical, resolute leadership from social democracy one shouldn't have expected it, uh, and from the fact that they aren't able to solve the crisis even when they're doing neoliberal things to uh, the banker's satisfaction. Uh, the deeper one, it's a much deeper crisis, uh, is, is to do with social democracy's embrace of neoliberal globalization uh, over the last 20, 30 years. This isn't simply a matter of Blairism by any means. Um, it was, it's a matter of social democracy, uh, certainly from the 1980s on, uh, much more determinedly from the 90s on, uh, endorsing competitiveness, endorsing international competitiveness. Yes, they would do something slightly more progressive. They would train workers so that they could compete uh, with wages uh, adequate to the standard of living in the global north so they could compete with Vietnamese women on a dollar a day by virtue of adding so much productivity by virtue of their alleged training. That was the theme of progressive competitiveness when uh, Clinton said it's the economy stupid uh, and won the election in 1992. He was being tutored by Robert Reich uh, to take that kind of line. We can keep jobs here provided we put resources into training our workforce to be competitive. If that means that uh, there's a closure of uh, a steel plant not in Ohio but in Ontario, well, too bad. That's the world of competitiveness. If the Germans can succeed at export competitiveness and the 
uh, Greeks or the Spanish can't, well, that's too bad. That's the danger of competitiveness. They need to learn to be equally competitive. And social democracy bought into that, yes, with a more, slightly more progressive tinge because you were going to train some workers and also have some awareness of the need for there to be a social uh, and physical infrastructure for this competitiveness. Uh, uh, they bought into the efficiency of markets idea, and we've seen, uh, uh, of course, here uh, more than anywhere, the tragedy of that buying in, that marketization of the NHS that Colin Lees and Stuart Player have uh, written about so eloquently uh, this year. Uh, the notion that marketization introducing internal competitiveness uh, inside the public sector, even without privatizing it, uh, is the way to succeed. Uh, and that involves inducing foreign capital to come in to run the hospitals to, uh, 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 with their expertise in this type of market efficiency, uh, introduce its principles into the public sector. Um, this has involved social democracy very explicitly, and you experience this more than anyone, but it was common, attaching itself very, very openly and explicitly and proudly to the U.S. empire. Uh, above all, not initially to do with Iraq, uh, although heaven knows that was there, but much, much more so in terms of the deep cooperation amongst the G7 countries in the managing of globalization in the coordination of it, in the making it happen. States were never bypassed by global capital. Uh, globalization, as we know, it was authored by states, and above all, by the close coordination uh, in free trade agreements, in, in the removal of capital controls uh, uh, between social democratic ministers uh, of finance and, and the treasuries. Uh, nowhere closer than between the UK Treasury under Blair and Brown uh, and uh, uh, the Clinton Treasury. Uh, one very senior uh, Treasury official uh, told me when I interviewed him uh, at the beginning of the decade, 2001 or two, uh, that he spent more time talking to and even seeing his counterparts at the U.S. Treasury than he did seeing people across the hall uh, in the Treasury office in Whitehall here. Uh, and and uh, now, what went with that, of course, was uh, the proud uh, lack of concern, uh, and this was spoken of really uh, very proudly, with uh, the grotesque rise in a high pay uh, for the wealthiest. I'm not at all concerned, Labor Minister said, Brad Blair himself said, with uh, the uh, gazillions of dollars that bankers make or that sports figures make. Much more troubling as a very senior Blairite uh, uh, researcher and then uh, minister said to me when I pressed him in 1999, what about growing inequality in Britain? He said, Leo, there are certain things we just can't do anything about. Uh, and as was also said uh, at uh, the panel we had uh, just before this, uh, very rightly, uh, it was largely a pragmatic, not an ideological uh, turn. It was a pragmatic turn in terms of precisely what was said this afternoon. What is Britain good at? What does it have a competitive advantage at? Uh, it's the city of London. Uh, this is the subsidiary of Wall Street. Uh, uh, British merchant banks had switched their allegiance from 
the pound to the dollar by the 1960s uh, with the European dollar market. Uh, American banks had come floating in. They were fully integrated with it. Uh, and and uh, we need to remember, after all, and this is where I think so much of the left was wrong, that this neoliberal globalized capitalism was very dynamic. A lot of people speak of capitalism since the days of the Keynesian welfare state as in stagnation. It's very misleading. Yes, the rates of growth in general on average were slightly less. But heaven knows we lived through one of the great transformative periods of capitalism, including an enormous technological revolution which probably wouldn't have taken place without the role of venture capital that this finance was involved in, deeply involved in. Of course, it also wouldn't have taken place without the state sponsorship of it, uh, whether in the military or otherwise, uh, that technological revolution. So it was a very dynamic moment in capitalism. And if you were a Labour Party politician in the 1990s, I remember one young uh, Labour Party researcher saying to me, well, what do you say to the fact that the Americans have got unemployment down to some 3%. This was in 96, 97, right? Whereas German unemployment was still up there around 10%. Isn't Clinton right in embracing neoliberal globalization as he did? Isn't he right to get rid of the welfare state, to end welfare as we know it? People got jobs after all, uh, even if they were forced jobs or people on welfare. Uh, and we're replacing well-paid union jobs. Uh, so that has all come crashing down. Given the volatility of the system, uh, who would have known that it would inevitably lead to a global capitalist crisis, but crises were inevitable. Uh, they did their best to contain them, but the ways in which they contained them uh, fed the fire. Uh, so after the dot-com uh, stock market bubble burst in 1999, uh, interest rates were kept very, very low by the Federal Reserve. Uh, this laid the basis for the housing bubble uh, and for the subprime mortgage crisis. Uh, and it was, of course, who needs to say this, it was Democrats in Congress who were putting most pressure on the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates low because it was a jobless recovery, let's remember, uh, until 2004-2005. Uh, in other words, this isn't just a matter of something that the bankers did to us. This is something in which social democracy was actively complicit, if not leading, but more than that. It was something in which labor movements were complicit and actively leading, not least insofar as their pension funds were heavily invested in this financialized capitalism and remain heavily invested in this financialized capitalism. Now, uh, as it blows up, as the Blairism associated with this capitalist dynamism uh, has come a cropper, uh, we see that what Ralph Miliband wrote in Socialism in a Skeptical Age ignored in 1994, uh, perhaps for understandable reasons, uh, given how well capitalism was doing, uh, uh, becomes far, far more relevant. Uh, but not only was Miliband ignored when he wrote Socialism for a Skeptical Age, 
was that book ignored? Uh, many other books like it, including one Robin wrote at the time, were ignored. There probably were more visionary models of what a new socialism would look like, written between, I don't know, 1988 and 1995, 96, than ever before in the 20th century, uh, as people laid out models for new forms of participatory economics and market socialism, etc. They were largely ignored in that period, but so were ignored those social democrats who were arguing for the possibility of retaining a European variety of capitalism, a coordinated capitalism. Uh, we can hold on to the Swedish model. We can hold on to the German model. Uh, and that was largely ignored as well, uh, as the dynamics of a financialized capitalism engulfed Sweden. People may remember the Swedish banking crisis, a product of Swedish banking deregulation in the mid-1980s. Uh, they may have followed the trajectory of the epitome of the type of bank that used to invest in industry, the Deutsche Bank, Germany's largest bank, which is now one of the world's leading investment banks and indistinguishable from Goldman Sachs uh, or, or any other you would point to uh, uh, in its practices. Um, and, and those policies were rejected. Uh, the way in which social democrats of the intellectual left would contrast the weak state of Anglo-Saxon capitalism as opposed to the strong state of European capitalism made very, very little impact on Anglo-American capitalism despite all of the intellectuals at Harvard and the LSE who tried to convince Clinton and Blair that they ought to be following uh, a German model which was in any case, and a Swedish model, uh, undoing itself through the course of the 1980s and 1990s. Now it's all come crashing down. And remarkably, we saw a very important victory in the Labour Party leadership election by the candidate who rejected Blairism, who identified a crisis in the party. And that was very significant. But this victory, of course, only compounds the crisis rather than solves it. Uh, uh, those who understand the extent to which the crisis of social democracy is bound up with its integration into capitalist globalization are surrounded by a parliamentary labor party and a shadow cabinet uh, that uh, still thinks in these terms, still thinks forward in terms of how to make Britain competitive on these terms again. Uh, and this includes, of course, most of the supporters of Gordon Brown as well. Uh, but more than that, there's very little experience any longer in the party, generally, certainly in the party leadership, with the type of political practice that would align popular mobilization and, and, and realign popular mobilization, steer uh, uh, the discontent somewhere more positive than where it is now. Uh, they don't know how to begin to interact with it in a way that would do that, and that's as true of the Obama White House as it's of true of the Labour Party leadership here or of Social Democratic Party leaders on the continent. Uh, I have to say that the most disappointing speech I heard Ed Miliband give was his speech to the TUC uh, this September where uh, he said, all strikes are a failure. 
They're a failure on the part of labor. They're a failure on the part of capital. They're a failure on part of the state. What we need is partnership. Uh, what we need is for uh, partnership between those agents in making Britain competitive. And uh, this isn't a matter of individual failings. And here again, I think one needs to uh, understand this, and Ralph understood this, I think, better than most political sociologists. Uh, again, uh, in uh, The State and Capitalist Society, he wrote, uh, uh, in opposition, but particularly in office, the political parties of the left have always been far more ambiguous about their purpose, to put it mildly, than their conservative rivals. This, it need hardly be said, has nothing to do with the personal attributes of social democratic leaders as compared to those of conservative ones. The question cannot be tackled in these terms. It needs rather to be seen in terms of the tremendous weight of conservative pressure and the fact that the ideological defenses of these leaders have not generally been of nearly sufficient strength to enable them to resist with any great measure of success conservative pressure, intimidation, and enticement. Here we see then the relevance of Miliband's parliamentary socialism. How long have I taken, Robin? Do I have much time left? Ooh, I might need a little bit more than that. There's another anniversary of a very important book being celebrated this year. Uh, it's the 55th anniversary of Anthony Crossland's The Future of Socialism. Uh, and one cannot understand what Miliband was doing unless uh, one understands how he was responding to that book, especially in the state and capitalist society, but also in parliamentary socialism. Crossland argued that Marxism made sense up until the end of the 1930s. Uh, he said that Marx was an intellectual giant, far surpassing the great classical economists, and only intellectual pygmies uh, made fun of a man like that. But he said, writing in 1956, the world has irrevocably changed. We now live in a world that has changed in the following three ways. The business classes have permanently lost power to the state. Secondly, there's been a transfer of power from management to labor. And thirdly, there's been an historic change within the business class. Economic, the economic power of capital markets and the financial houses is much weaker today than it's ever been. The state and capitalist society was uh, designed, I believe, to show how wrong Crossland was for his time, let alone for what eventually transpired. Uh, and I think the failure of so much of the left to understand what's been going on in the neoliberal era has been a very static notion of what the Keynesian welfare state, the New Deal regulatory reforms are all about. They were not only about, and they certainly were about, real reforms that strengthen working classes. No question. They were also about bringing the capitalist classes back to economic health and dynamism at the same time. It wasn't a zero-sum game. Finance was being nurtured back to health through those reforms. 
And it was being nurtured back to health through the wage increases and the social welfare benefits that working classes were getting, investing in banks, buying insurance policies, uh, getting credit cards, etc., etc., being integrated into capitalist finance. Through the very economic redistribution that took place under the Keynesian welfare state. So when by the 1960s, you had a crisis of the Keynesian welfare state. You had two opposing classes that were both stronger. A capitalist class that was stronger, with its multinational corporations and increasingly international banks, right? and a working class that was stronger, but was mainly stronger in a deep politicized way. That is, the great victories of the working class had primarily been turned into instruments for consumer acquisition. Primarily. That was the crisis of the Keynesian welfare state. And Miliband had a sense of this. Uh, uh, but he also understood very well, both in that crisis of the 1960s and 70s, uh, and he would have understood in this crisis, and again, Robin uh, Blackburn was just saying it at the previous session we had, that there's no such thing as capitalist breakdown. There are capitalist crises, but capitalism does not break down and go away of itself. Uh, there may be enormous regulation or enormous suffering or both involved in containing a given crisis, in the restructuring that may take place as a result of it, but it will not go away without there being a political change, above all in the state, that would uh, produce a systemic alternative. Uh, and and uh, we need then to understand what Miliband was about in parliamentary socialism uh, to get a grip on the political situation we're in in the current crisis. Uh, and, and most remarkably, there's a passage right at the beginning in the introduction uh, on page 16, uh, uh, right at the end of the introduction, where Ralph said, the assumption is often made in discussions of the present crisis in the Labour Party that the latter's difficulties are of recent origin. This is not so. Like Hobbes and Fear, crisis and the Labour Party have always been twins, Siamese twins. And explanations which begin with recent difficulties either mistake the symptoms of the crisis or its aggravation for the crisis itself. What is being said about the Labour Party's failure to act as an effective opposition in the 50s, and he's writing this, of course, the book comes out in 1961, he's probably penning this in 1960, and what, uh, and, uh, what is to be said about the Labour Party's failure to act as an effective opposition in the 50s, or its ambiguity of purpose in the same period, of course that's being said today as well, uh, has also been said with equal emphasis and equal justification ever since it came into being. In fact, what is so remarkable about the Labour Party is the similarity of the problems which have beset it throughout its history. And this is what he set out to show people. That you couldn't understand the problems of British politics unless you understood this permanent crisis in the Labour Party. Now, how do we understand it? How is he suggesting we understand it? There have been three ways in which uh, analysts 
of working class parties, of the mass working class parties, uh, have tried to explain their problem. The reason that they did not, for all of the hopes invested in them, provide an alternative to capitalism uh, and usher us in, at least on a road to socialism, but rather, by the end of the 20th century, uh, were very much embedded in the capitalist system themselves. How did that happen? The book that I mentioned before, Roberto Michel's Political Parties, The Iron Law of Oligarchy, offered an explanation in terms, as the subtitle indicates, an organizational explanation, which he supplemented with a psychological one. The, organi the, organi bless you. the organizational explanation is grounded in the fact that he's, he's looking, in his case, at the German Social Democratic Party, remarkable mass organization, uh, uh, the most important of uh, the working class parties created in the period of 1880 to 1920. Uh, it's an extra-parliamentary party. Uh, it isn't created by cadre inside parliament who then want to get elected once the working class gets the vote. So they uh, create an extra-parliamentary organization. No, uh, they get into parliament having created a party outside of parliament. Uh, it has an explicitly Marxist orientation, let alone a socialist one. Uh, but this is not a game we're playing. You can't do this as a hobby, Michelle says. If you're serious about this, given the strength and power of uh, the regimes we're facing and of the capitalist system itself, people need to do this full time. So you put people to work, uh, you take people out of the movement, whether they were uh, workers or journalists or what have you before, and you give them a permanent party position. With a permanent party position, they are the ones who control the conference agenda, they control the party funds, they control the party newspaper, and they don't want to go back to the shop floor. And they don't want to go back to being journalists. Moreover, they spend more of their time with other parliamentarians or negotiating with capitalists than they do any longer with the rank and file. And they discover these guys don't eat babies for breakfast. They're quite decent human beings. Uh, so a division establishes itself between the rank and file and the leadership. Right? And the leadership uses its power to ensure it gets re-elected and bureaucratism develops. There's also a psychological problem, above all in the masses, because these masses have never had anyone stick up for them before. So there's an enormous amount of hero worship and deference to the party leadership. That's Michelle's explanation. Another explanation. Uh, written in a book after uh, Ralph's book, although Ralph's book influenced it, has been offered very famously by Adam Jaworski, uh, now then at Chicago, now uh, at NYU, uh, in a series of articles, but especially in a book ca uh, called Paper Stones, Electoral Socialism. Jaworski is a game theorist. And on the presumption that the working class was never a majority, and he defines the working class very narrowly as the manual industrial working class, this means, in terms of electoral logic, that you have to appeal to the middle classes, which all white-collar salaried employees uh, are designated as well. In order to appeal to them, you need to water down the class content of the party platform. Uh, you need to go for the floating voter, uh, if you like. Uh, and as a result, you no longer are educating the working class to socialism because your appeal is offered to the flowing voter and you get a loss of class identity, class consciousness, uh, as well as socialist purpose. That's the electoral logic argument, the rational choice game theory argument. Miliband offered a third explanation. And it may sound crude, but I think it's the only one that really makes a lot of sense. 
uh, and, and the only one that we uh, can hope is right if there's to be any future outside of capitalism. And that is that they didn't even try. Uh, had they tried, they might have tried to organize teachers to think of themselves broadly as workers. Why did they not try? And here again, it doesn't come down to personal failings. That's not what the book is about at all. It's an explanation that says they wanted to get into Parliament. At the time they were going to get into Parliament, they needed the help of the Liberals to get into Parliament. And once they got into Parliament in order to win reforms that workers certainly need immediately without waiting for socialism, they entered into a politics of negotiation and compromise with other parliamentarians. But in doing so, entering into that process of negotiation, compromise with other parliamentarians, they had to embrace the Burkean definition of the British Constitution, which is that insofar as there is any representation in the British state, it's exclusively through Parliament. And it meant that any extra-parliamentary mobilization embarrassed these Labour representatives insofar as they were negotiating with the Liberals inside Parliament. And, by, and their inclination, their parliamentarism, why it was parliamentary socialism, was to increasingly prove themselves to the ruling class, uh, the most progressive wings of it, of course, uh, that they were respectable and, uh, and, and respectful of the British Constitution, which meant that they were hostile to extra-parliamentary mobilizations, including those very mobilizations which made the labor movement a strong enough force, the dock strike of the 1890s, etc., to be able to secure a chance for labor representation in the first place. So uh, someone, I think Tyrick mentioned this today, uh, for the most part, very few exceptions, honorable ones like Keir Hardy, the labor leadership was determinately critical of the suffragettes. MacDonald referred, and Miliband quotes this, refers to their tactics as reactionary and antisocial, vote or no vote, because it was not following parliamentarist channels. And that was moreover their attitude to labor struggles as well. Now in that, this is not a matter of the labor parliamentary leadership versus the trade union. The trade union leadership largely call it trade union bureaucracy if you like, you can call it, call it concern with not risking their organizational rights, especially in that period, was equally suspicious of the rank and file and the strike weapon, etc. And equally committed to a form of labor representation uh, which was Burkean uh, in its traditional now, I used to think that the thesis I wrote uh, under Ralph was a criticism of parliamentary socialism. Uh, I argued against Ralph that, uh, and he, I must say, I don't know how he let me get away with this, uh, that uh, what he didn't see was that the type of parliamentarism the Labour Party practiced uh, needed to be explained in terms of its ideology. It wasn't parliamentarism that was determining, but rather it was its ideology that determined the type of parliamentarism it practiced. Uh, and the type of parliamentarism it practiced, and I went through the terrible mistake of trying to prove this, so I was reading Ramsay MacDonald at enormous length 
at the age of what, 22, 23, 24? Can you imagine anything more likely to put iron in your soul? Uh, and, 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 you know, if you read McDonald's writings, his speeches, Socialism Society from 1906, etc., he has one theme. We are not a class party. The Tories are a class party. Yes, we represent the working class, but that's because they don't. We are a party of national unity and class harmony. Uh, and I must say, when people started getting excited about Blair in the mid-1990s, uh, and I started looking at his speeches and the articles on him, etc., one thing kept occurring to me. This guy is a reincarnation of Ramsay MacDonald. I'm serious. Right? Yes, MacDonald was more optimistic about collectivism, uh, uh, about educating the ruling class to socialism in the Fabian sense uh, than Blair was. Uh, but in terms of the basic principles of we represent the nation, not the class, they articulated in very, very similar ways. Uh, now, things did change in the 1950s. Now, I must say, uh, at the same time, I have to make one other important point. And Ralph saw this very, very clearly. All of that is true. You know, he, I don't know why he put up with my thinking I was amending him, since I, if you go back, if you now sit down and read Parliamentary Socialism, this is a central theme of the book. Uh, and I don't know what I thought I was doing, uh, rediscovering the wheel. He was very tolerant. Um, uh, but at the same time, and what Ralph shows through the book, is something else. They may not have liked all of this ex-parliamentary struggle that embarrassed them, etc., but they couldn't stop it. Class struggle is a fact of life. They couldn't prevent the suffragettes from organizing. So they had to compromise with it. They had to accommodate to it. And this often involved them vis-a-vis -vis their uh, interlocutors in Parliament uh, having to uh, adopt, especially in party conference and speeches to uh, uh, the uh, unions and so on, a more radical-sounding message than they would give in Parliament. Secondly, there always are socialists in the Labour Party. Believe it or not, there are still socialists in the Labour Party. Uh, and insofar as there are socialists in the Labour Party, they do act as a pressure group on the leadership. The result of this is that the party is in a constant contradiction. The constant contradiction is that it both needs to accommodate to that class and socialist pressure, since whether Gateskill liked it or not, he called the designation of Labour in the 1950s uh, as a class party, a monstrous falsehood. That's how Ralph ends the book. Imagine a labor party. Its leader says that the designation of it as a class party is a monstrous falsehood. Can't understand that except in the context of the Cold War, of course. Uh, it had to accommodate to being a class party. It had to accommodate to socialists in the party. But at the same time, it had to constantly pull back from that. Uh, uh, in order to engage in its parliamentarist practice. These contradictions were most acute at times of government. You saw this in the most negative way, of course, in terms that are almost identical to what Pesach in Greece has gone through today in the 1929-31 McDonald government. Uh, the response to that crisis in terms of we can't get off the gold standard, uh, the only way we can deal with this is to cut unemployment benefits, uh, which is what they did. Uh, finally, the unions and 
the bulk of the party wouldn't accept this, the PLP wouldn't accept it, and you got the national government, right? with MacDonald as head of that national government. Uh, you saw these contradictions in a much more positive sense with the 1945 government, right? which, given the experience of the Depression and the war, and the conjuncture of the war internationally and domestically, uh, you saw Labour see through a series of very substantial reforms. But Miliband's critique of the 45 government is not that these weren't real reforms. On the contrary, he explicitly says they were, but that you would have expected that they would be the basis upon which, at the next election, you would have an even greater struggle with capital in order to go beyond those reforms, rather than have them integrated and accommodated to the capitalist system. And that's precisely what didn't happen. What happened instead was what ended up with Crossland's definition, uh, which was that we have now accomplished the social transformation. It no longer needs to be accomplished. We've accomplished it. Miseland hesitated to call this revisionism, as much of the left and extra labor left did. Uh, Gates goes revisionism, Crossland's revisionism. Writing of the Labour Party in 1900, uh, at the time of the German debate around revisionism, Bernstein saying the movement is everything, the end is nothing. Uh, capitalism will yield collectivism of its own dynamic, etc. Uh, Miliband said. Uh, and I'm quoting, the strategists of the Labour Party were not theoretical revisionists since they had never, so to speak, been visionists. <laughs> the contradictions became most acute in the 60s and 70s because they were bound up with the contradictions of the Keynesian welfare state. The accomplishment of 1945 came into crisis in the 60s and 70s. And because of that, the crisis was greatest and most prolonged because of the very prolonged nature. It wasn't as deep a crisis as the 30s, but it was a longer one. Uh, and and you know, people may think it's a crisis of the 70s, and they tend to forget what happened here in 1965, 66, 67, until the pound was finally devalued, uh, the cutbacks in the welfare state, the centerpiece of policy being wage restraint, uh, etc. Uh, this was a crisis that emerged out of full employment capitalism, the very real reforms. Insofar as workers knew that they were fully employed, could pick up another job, they were economically militant. Koletsky and Joan Robinson had pointed this out in World War II. The reserve army of labor has a function in capitalism. It makes workers fearful. If they aren't fearful, they're likely to demand things from capital that capital can't live with. They don't have to be socialism. You can demand too much wages. You can say, I'm not going to work hard enough given the new machinery you've put in. And that's precisely what happened in the 1960s and 70s. Most of that was oriented to either telling the boss to screw off if he wanted to work harder, which was captured very well by the angry British playwrights uh, of that era, that kind of negativism of the British working class, young working class in that period. Uh, but part of it was also, they're telling me to buy a fridge, they're telling me to buy an automobile, uh, they're telling me to, that the American dream uh, in the British context, and this was Macmillan's theme, involved everybody being a homeowner, 
I don't want to be stuck in a council flat, for heaven's sake. Uh, I want my own home. So I need, in other words, once I'm 28 and I'm beyond an apprentice's wages, the only way I'm going to get higher wages is if I'm economically militant with the rest of my mates. Uh, and I'll get the wages that allow me to buy into the system. So you got a militancy together with an increasingly competitive capital. Uh, a capitalism that was increasingly competitive in terms of trade and that was increasingly disciplined already by the movement of international finance and multinational corporations. It was in that context that you got the most remarkable attempt in the Labour Party's history by the Labour left to get beyond those contradictions. And it was bound to blow up. It was the most determined attempt to make the party leadership in Parliament responsible to the party conference, to the constituency parties, to the trade unions. No question. The Campaign for Labour Party Democracy didn't happen after 1980. It, be, it, it was founded in 1972, and it went through the whole of the 70s. Uh, the rank-and-file trade unions, uh, much of their strikes were as much against the union leadership uh, as they were against uh, their employers or the Labour government. Uh, uh, ben, uh, in 1970, 71, embarked on a series of speeches at trade union conferences uh, in which he not only laid out the alternative economic strategy, the need to go beyond the welfare state reforms to actually take capital away from capital, or we were going to lose those reforms. A very famous speech at the time, Ben anticipated Thatcherism and said you're going to be offered freedom from the state in order to do away with what has been won so far. And since people weren't enamored of the uh, nanny state, quote-unquote, people most dependent on it didn't feel, for the most part, that social workers weren't social control agents rather than people that they could uh, have understand their problems. There was a strong appeal in that, as we know, which led to Thatcherism, etc. Uh, but Ben did more than that. He went to the unions and said, for heaven's sake, especially public sector unions, but he said this at the TUC in 1972, for heaven's sake, the opinion polls are right. You're unpopular. How can this be that they think you're about selfishness and acquisitiveness? Do your children, do your wives, do your neighbors know what the trade union movement stands for? Are you engaged in trying to control, not just sabotage, the labor process? Uh, labor party leaders were as uncomfortable with that uh, as they were uh, with the proposals on the alternative economic strategy or the nationalization of the banks. Okay. Uh, Miliband comes to the conclusion, by the time the second edition comes out, that the Labour Party can't be changed. That the greatest illusion of the left in Britain is that the Labour Party might yet be turned into a socialist party, and that's said very clearly in an essay called Moving On in the Socialist Register in the mid-70s, but if you read the last pages of uh, uh, the postscript uh, in the second edition, he says it very explicitly there as well, very explicitly. Uh, and he turned out to be right. Not because he didn't admire what was taking place inside the Labour Party, but because he understood very clearly that it could only have the effect of splitting the party. And a divided party can't win elections. 
Uh, you may remember Mrs. Thatcher wasn't doing so well in the polls in 1981-82. Uh, was, she ran in 1983 on how can you vote for these guys? They're fighting with each other. And moreover, they're fighting with the loony left, these crazies, etc. cetera. Uh, with the help of the uh, uh, Murdoch press, this became the central theme upon which labor was defeated. And uh, the inevitable result, of course, was that most of the labor left I'm speaking here of Neil Kinnock, Michael Foote, uh, uh, and, and much of the left that even uh, supported the Greater London Council uh, moved quickly away from the project. Out of loyalty, out of a strategy that, my God, Thatcher really is bad and we need to unite everybody to the left of Thatcher in that old popular frontist way that people like Eric Hobsbawm were pushing so determinedly against Ben uh, in the early 80s. Uh, and it was a pragmatic move. It wasn't an ideological one, but it was one in the end that involved saying to the Murdoch press, okay, uncle, you win. Please don't call us revolutionaries. Don't say we're a class party. It took a long time for that to work itself through until we got to Blairism. It wasn't something that happened overnight, but that's finally what happened. Okay. Miliband hated the phrase, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. He thought we needed optimism of the intellect uh, and pessimism of the will. We had to be sober about our volunteerism, but there was every reason to be optimistic about the possibilities of socialism. And if you read the last pages of uh, uh, Socialism for a Skeptical Age, uh, if you read the last pages of the State and Capitalist Society, where he lays out the case for a cooperative uh, society. Uh, if you look at the way in which Socialism for Skeptical Age identifies the type of protests, occupations, uh, democratic struggles above all that we've seen in the Global South this year, uh, you will see the extent to which he was not a pessimist of the intellect. Uh, he was a pessimist of the will in the sense that he didn't expect these would yield immediate revolution. Almost everywhere where a revolution happened, this is where he was very different from uh, his close Trotskyist friends, who would always see the Portuguese Revolution in 74 as the harbinger of an immediate change. He was always very pessimistic about this, and he was right. But he was never pessimistic about the possibility of a renewal of socialist organization, socialist possibilities. And that's what's left for us to do uh, in the 21st century. Sorry I went on so long. Well, thank you very much, uh, Leo. Thank you very much, Professor Panage, for a, um, an excellent contribution. Um, it was the intention of the organisers that there should be um, chair-led discussion for a few minutes to focus on your um, arguments. I think um, I'm only just going to ask you very briefly a couple of things, and then I do want to make sure that people can have a number of uh, chances to ask you questions from the floor. Um, one of the most striking things you said was that both in Britain and the United States and elsewhere, social democratic parties did not know how to interact with the social movements which you were talking about earlier in your talk. And I wondered if you could just briefly, I mean really very briefly, just try to indicate 
what they ought to do to interact with them, but also what the social movements should do in order to be, if you like, interactable with. Because after all, it would be an irresponsible leader of the Labor Party who paid no attention to their electability. Um, so what would be required, just very briefly, kind of indicate what would be required as an optimistic scenario to facilitate a mutually supportive relationship between the elected leaders of the Labor Party and the social movements which you've been talking about? Uh, I think what Ralph would have said, and I agree with it, and he says it right at the, in the last pages of Parliamentary Socialism, uh, when the argument is made that we'll lose the floating wo voter, he says a socialist party should be prepared to lose the floating voter. And what does he mean by that? That it should pay no attention to electoralism? No. Uh, I mean, Ralph's contribution is that it isn't a matter of reform versus revolution, elections versus insurrection. That isn't how he framed the question. But he is making the case that the point of a socialist party is to create the base for when it's elected to be able to undertake the type of structural reforms that will create a possibility of getting beyond capitalism. And if the point of getting elected is only to get elected without creating that base, then uh, the purpose is being defeated. Uh, now, he would have understood very well the types of uh, enormous responsibilities uh, leaders of the Labour Party have. After all, people's careers depend on getting elected. And even if they are selfless and they don't mind losing the next election, there's a lot of people uh, who are employed by the Labour Party, in Parliament, etc., that they feel responsible to in terms of their not losing their jobs. So the pressures on them to engage the floating voter are very real. But, uh, and this I think is one of the reasons one needs to go beyond the Labour Party, uh, to create new organizations, new political parties, which are certainly very much needed, uh, but of the kind that will have uh, the basis by the time they engage in the electoral struggle to be able to conduct that struggle on an entirely different plane. One which is changing the discourse of politics rather than accommodating the discourse of politics. Now, that's not to say that that doesn't involve engaging in social movements, as you say. I say, above all, it involves engaging the trade unions, as I was indicating. Uh, it means very much being aware that public sector strikes are an, an enormous problem, precisely in terms of removing the services from the people that matter, who you're providing them to. What are these public services about? And you're taking them away from them. And that's why they're so unpopular. So how do public sector trade unions, and this is so relevant to next week, how do public sector trade unions engage in these struggles in a way that takes up the needs and interests of the people they're providing the public services to? Uh, that involves a change in the nature of union organizations. It's not that people aren't aware of it, but it involves a very different type of public sector union than one that has a structure very similar to the old private sector sectoral trade unionism. It involves a class trade unionism. As Michael McIver said in the last session, the law is now against it. The industrial relations law, gradually introduced by labor and then introduced all the more by Thatcher, makes it impossible 
for trade unions to go on strike in defense of public services, let alone for more extended and democratized public services. It's illegal. You can only go to strike, uh, go on strike on a matter that is uh, being bargained by the employer. Right? Wages and conditions. So this is very difficult, but a labor leader, whether the party can be made socialist or not, and I think it can't, a labor leader needs to, if he's going to be heard in terms of how to change public sector unions, he needs to be on their side. He needs to say, I'm with you. Now let's sit down and figure out how to make the strike effective, rather than strikes are always a failure. Okay, thanks. Um, I, I, won't, I won't ask you to follow up on this, but just to lodge it in people's minds if someone else wants to follow up. And I mean, the other side of the question is what must social movements do to be interlocutors? But, but let's just leave that and pause. I mean, because the thrust of uh, this book and, and your contribution is that the problem lies on one side of this relationship. And, I mean, one could enter into a discussion about whether that's so. Can I just very quickly get you to comment on a, what seems to me a paradox? I mean, when parliamentary socialism is written, people take for granted the strength of the kind of representative democracy that is in place in Britain. But it's arguable today that the kind of um, austerity measures and the neoliberal crisis, especially in the Eurozone, is, is threatening the institutions of representative democracy. So, I mean, what is one to do with that? I mean, on the one hand, uh, Miliband is, uh, Ralph Miliband is criticising um, Labor for its respect of parliamentary norms, but we are living in an environment in which we need to defend and strengthen the respect for parliamentary norms. Uh, given the crisis that we find ourselves in. So I just, again, if you'd, I, I'm sorry, it's a big question, no, but I want to get it's other a good one. as well. Well, just, just very quickly, I, you know, it, it's uh, a matter of going beyond them. Uh, it, it's not a matter of uh, merely defending the very constrained and limited type of democracy we have. Uh, it's very lack of legitimation, the ability for it to be further constricted. Uh, in the face of what are still, after all, liberal democratic systems. Uh, the ability to do that reflects the cynicism of the populace about this type of politics. Uh, and it is one, let's face it, in which career representatives, teams of career representatives, people whose careers are, those are to be representatives, right, stand before you every four or five years and say, put me there as policy walks, and I will then sit on this enormous, undemocratic beast called the capitalist state and direct it for you. Right? That's what we know as democracy. And what we need is a vision of democracy. We need to be visionists, uh, which doesn't remove, heaven knows, the need for representation, uh, but one which makes it less careerist, uh, and one that opens up the democratization of the state, including public services, and the public sector unions as well. So when you say it's all one-sided, I don't mean it's one-sided. On the contrary, I think that probably the unions need to change more than the party. But it, they aren't going to change without the political leadership. Uh, you need a left in order to change the unions. Uh, rather than uh, a leadership that's embarrassed by them because they engage in strikes sometimes. Okay, thank you very much. Um, if you don't mind, I might just um, take a few questions, um, perhaps, perhaps uh, three if I can. Um, the person in the back with the glasses to begin with. Yeah, uh, 
Okay, thank you. Um, another question, please. Is there anybody over here that's uh, wanting to ask one? Yep. Uh, the, the, the young man at the back, yeah. I mean, young is relative. It's, yep. it's you. Hey, and um, yes, Michael. Who to me? Let me just point out to the rest of the audience that the last speaker is Professor Newman, whose book, Ralph Miliband and the Politics of the New Left, is the authoritative book on this subject. Um, so one would be hesitant to dispute him in a sort of a hefty way. Can I just get one further question and then um, that, that, that man at the back, yep. Whatever it's being implemented in Sweden, monetarism failed in the late 1960s. I wonder what is it about the crisis? 
still analysing the powers of uh, Tony Benn in the early 80s. The right don't do that. And I wonder what is the Okay, um, if you could make yeah. it reasonably brief, then we'll get another round Good, and then try. we'll not be kicked out. Um, Alex Green, of course, asked, asked the first question, and it was one I intended to come to if I hadn't run out of time, but I had a note from Robin that said, you've been speaking 60 minutes uh, with an exclamation word. So <laughs> I stopped. I, I think uh, that, that's absolutely uh, right that, that uh, the origins of the problem of, uh, let's just take, uh, European social democracy as opposed to laborism uh, is very different from laborism in terms of the explanation. But I think that the fact that they have ended up in the same place uh, involves an explanation uh, that would take us to why did they stop trying at a certain point? Was it the same logic once they were in Parliament? You know, the Bernard de Juvenal question, uh, answer. There's more in common between two parliamentarians, one of whom is a socialist, than between two socialists, one of whom is a parliamentarian. He ended up a fascist. So did Michel's, by the way, right, a supporter of Mussolini, because they were very cynical then about the possibilities of democracy, let alone of, of socialism. Um, so at some point, we would have to get there. And heaven knows the German Social Democrats, partly the Cold War, but really layers of party and union bureaucracy. So I think Michel's would have to come in here. Uh, 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 by the 1950s wrapped themselves in constitutionalism, right? They're the supporters of the greatest attacks on the extra-parliamentary left, right? Uh, and they're leaking into the public urinal against the new left in Germany. That's Edward Thompson's phrase about the way the right in social democratic parties or uh, inside the state uh, use the press against socialists. Uh, against pacifists, etc. Uh, they're the ones who embrace the German constitution. Um, so I think one would have to come to that. I think the explanation of the communist parties, who do end up as social democrats through a long and circuitous route, has more to do with the contradictions and, and failures of Leninism as a practice. Uh, and Ralph uh, and those of us who studied closely with him uh, were never Leninists. Um, for reasons that had to do with a rejection of democratic centralism. Uh, very, very different than our Trotskyist friends uh, or, or people in the Communist Party as an organizational principle. Um, but it also had to do, can I just say this, uh, without being apologetic, it also had to do with the loyalty to the Soviet Union in a class struggle that was in fact international. Uh, given uh, what uh, had happened there, both in terms of what the Bolsheviks did to themselves or had done to them, uh, but also in terms of the way in which they were cut off and uh, nudged into socialism in one country. And if you think about what the left is advising the Greek left to do today, which is pull out of the euro, and I largely agree with that, for heaven's sake, default. You're forced to anyway. Get out of it. Well, then needs to think about the costs of that for the Greek people. Where will they get the wherewithal to buy the German goods that they need and is, after all, the source of the problem? And this isn't just a matter of final consumer goods. It's intermediary goods for production. Right? Well, this would only, that problem would only be attenuated if there was a shift in the balance of forces where? In Germany. Doesn't that sound a bit like the weakest link thesis? The hope in Russia 
1917 that there would be a change in Germany which would provide space in Russia for the revolution in a socialist sense to be seen through rather than a dictatorial authoritarian state system. Yes. And unless there is a shift in the balance of forces elsewhere in Europe, uh, we're facing, when we're advocating this to the Greeks, we're telling them to face the same problem. Uh, you know, they'd have to introduce capital controls. This is what the European capitalists are most, and American capitalists are most concerned about that the end of this crisis in Europe will be states that forswore capital controls forever would have to return to them. And that would, that's been the essential element in neoliberal globalization. The essential element. Free capital movements to land on labor all over the world. Uh, and they're deathly afraid that that would happen. But the type of capital controls that would have to be introduced that would really yield something progressive would be the type of controls that don't just control the flow of capital in and out of the country, but are the type of capital controls that help us decide what's invested, where it's invested, what's produced, how it's produced, all of the things that socialists have always talked about and that we lack in our democracy. And that, you know, leads me to the democracy point. Yes, I mean, I, I think Ralph was very conscious of the need to make the case that we don't live in an economic democracy. He, if you read, and you know it better than anyone, uh, Michael, but if you read Parliamentary Socialism, what is constantly there is the theme that, yes, labor nationalized, but opposed to the very last dot, the uh, workers' participation in the management of the nationalized industry. It's a constant theme through that book, how that happened. And, and he takes that as one of the great failures of 1945, right? because it sets up the alienation from the state right? uh, that eventually occurs. Um, the anti-globalization movement, well, is neoliberalism successful? Uh, I think neoliberalism you know, has been, from, in capitalist terms, unbelievably successful, despite the fact that it's also very crisis-prone. Uh, but it's been unbelievably successful in the sense that so much of the world has been made capitalist, which is what this latest book was about. You know, taking the development of underdevelopment thesis and making it, except for pockets of the world, important ones, like parts of Africa, uh, look arcane. We've seen a remarkable capitalist development in the global south. Yes, it's often an extremely ugly one as the Chinese communist elite turns itself with great venality into a capitalist class, usually through its princelings as they're known, the children or nephews of the party bosses, the regional party bosses, it's ugly, but boy is it a very successful late capitalist development. And boy, as with Singapore and with Japan, uh, does it involve not having free and independent trade unions in order to have that successful export-oriented economy work. Right? I think it's been enormously successful. It's been full of contradictions that have yielded crises. And then you can say, from the perspective of looking at the world over two, three decades, yes, it ends up in an appalling mess. And there will be tremendous restructuring through this crisis. Right? Um, but I think it's been enormously successful uh, in their terms. Uh, whether it's been good for most people. Well, you know, the standards of living of most British 
No, European and American workers, despite the stagnation of wages and the defeat of trade unionism since the 80s, did not go down. It went up. Why? Because they lived on, on capitalist credit. Uh, and that's what eventually led to the mortgage crisis, of course. Uh, many of the subprime mortgages were going to people not to buy homes, although it was that as well, but to take out secondary mortgages on their homes so that they could continue consuming. Right? Uh, so their standard of living went up, but it went up in the context of the successful integration of them uh, into financial capital. Right? Powerless within it, certainly except in the highly mediated form of what their pension funds might do. And since they are run by pension managers at great arm's length from the workers who have their pensions in them, right? uh, and, and, and pension managers, moreover, who keep their jobs on the basis of a competitive uh, ability to show that they get high returns and move elsewhere in the financial industry, the degree of control workers have over those pension funds is minimal. Uh, so even that form of institutional integration gives them no power. The anti-globalization movement, uh, you're absolutely right, it, it uh, I think, brought back again a systemic alternative. Uh, it has been from the beginning in its horizontalism, in its commitment to a politics of organizing one protest after another. Right? It's been oppositional, it's been largely symbolic, uh, that's not to say it hasn't been enormously important. Uh, it has set up now for over a decade, and what we're seeing going on today is certainly the child of it. Uh, it has set up an anti-systemic discourse again. Another world is possible, etc. Which capital had to respond to. Uh, Davos used to be just talking about which mergers would take place next year. Davos is the place in Switzerland where the world's capitalists, elite, and businessmen go to every year to enjoy skiing and good food and talk about the world's problems. And they used to talk about, you know, what mergers were going to take place next year. Increasingly, with the anti-globalization movement, they talked about world poverty. They did damn all about it. But it was the issue that they had to deal with in terms of this challenge. As Naomi Klein has said, the difference with the Occupy movement is that it's not oriented to the next meeting of the G7 or the IMF or the World Bank. And in that sense, by identifying Wall Street, if you like, right, uh, it's much more accurate in terms of where power lies. I remember four months after Seattle, people went to Washington for the IMF World Bank meetings in April 2000. And they marched past the U.S. Treasury and Federal Reserve building to protest at the IMF and World Bank buildings. That was a misreading of where power lies. Power does not lie primarily in the IMF and the World Bank. It lies in the American Treasury, in the Federal Reserve, and their linkages with the, the central banks and treasuries and finance ministries of the other advanced capitalist states. So I think what's happened now, as Naomi Klein has said, is very positive in terms of directing attention to where power lies. In that sense, it's very positive. It is more determined, perhaps, than ever not to have anything to do with politics, with representation, with parties. 
members of the Congressional Black Congress in the House of Representatives who marched with Martin Luther King, who tried to come speak at Occupy Wall Street, were not allowed to speak because they saw that as being tainted with the possibility of co-optation into the Democratic Party. There is a visceral anti-leadership in these movements. And it does have to do with very, very committed anarchist thought. Very committed anarchist thought. It's not surprising that it's there amongst young people, given this appalling history of parties that we've been talking about tonight. We're back somewhat like the moment that when those parties were first founded in the late 19th century. And there was a very strong anarchist and syndicalist movement then as well, which was anti-party, which was anti-representation. But that type of politics in the end can only either be insurrectionary or symbolic. It doesn't create the institutions we need to change the state. And you can't change the world without changing the state. Perry Anderson put it best in his uh, very important 1974 book, the classic uh, on the absolute lineages of the absolute states. Somewhere in the first 20 pages, he says, a history from below is certainly the better part of history. But we need to remember that transformations from one mode of production to another only take place insofar as they take place through the state. And until we get back to a politics that is both mobilizing, uh, uh, but is also directed at taking and changing power, we'll be going to the next protest forever. Um, Leo, thank you very much. I fear we're well past eight, so sorry. I'm sorry if you were waiting for other questions, but I think we, we will have to wrap it up. I just want to thank you for you know, a really wonderful talk. I mean, I think what, what it's demonstrated in a variety of ways is the ongoing significance of, of this uh, literature. I mean, whatever you think about the relationship between these parliamentary movements and extra-parliamentary ones, it's clear that we're in a special period where that kind of issue is on the agenda again. And whether you think the ambiguity of purpose is um, uh, just something to be happy to get back to, or whether you think um, it's something to be a source of concern, uh, that too is, a, is an issue um, which is very important. I think it's been a most fitting way to celebrate um, an important book on its 50th anniversary and its ongoing significance to our contemporary discussion. So if you join me in thanking...